Good evening, everyone, and welcome to this month's Data Bytes, getting things done with data in government, supported by Administrative Data Research UK, ADR UK, and the Economic and Social Research Council, the ESRC. I'm Gavin Freegard, Associate at the Institute for Government, IFG, and it's wonderful as ever to welcome so many of you this evening. Let's start in the usual way. Hands up if you've been to Data Bytes before. Welcome back. And hands up if this is your first Data Bytes. Welcome. This is our 19th Data Bytes, and with five fantastic speakers giving four brilliant presentations, it promises to be every bit as good as the previous 18. You won't find a better value evening at any other research organisation. Data Bytes, the John Lewis of think tank events, never knowingly undersold. Let's start as ever with some housekeeping. We're on the record and are being live streamed, obviously. If you're on Twitter, the hashtag is IFGDataBytes and we're live tweeting from at IFGEvents. And if you're watching this on Slido, you can use the Q&A tool to put questions to our speakers. If you're not, you can follow the link on the screen. Why do we run DataBytes? Three main reasons. Data means lots of things and we want to bring different data communities together. We want to show people, especially those who don't think of themselves as data people, what better data can achieve. And we want to put some interesting projects on the record for everyone to learn from. How does DataBytes work? Well, you're going to be treated to four presentations tonight. Each presenter, or in one case, pair of presenters, will have eight minutes to present. Yes, just eight minutes. There are eight bits in a byte, hence eight minutes in a data byte. After that, the presenter or presenters will face eight minutes of questions. Yes, eight minutes again. And then we'll move on to the next presentation. So four presentations of eight minutes, each followed by eight minutes of questions. If you'd like to watch the previous 18 events, that's last month's speakers on screen, you can find them all on the IFG website. So what's happened since we last met? Let's start with some sport that isn't me gloating about Wales winning something for a change. Yes, football's European Super League or ESL kept us entertained for all of 44 hours between 12 of Europe's leading clubs triggering the footballing equivalent of Article 50 and the first English club making like the government and U-turning. Let's see how those 44 hours compare to some other things, shall we? It was the Snooker World Championship final this week, so cue the longest ever final, the famous 1985 black ball one. The ESL lasted longer than that. It lasted longer than the total running time of Databytes so far. We'll overtake it during Databytes 37, so see you in March 2023. And it lasted longer than the total running time of Line of Duty so far. The ESL is shorter, however, than the complete audio version of the Harry Potter books, while displaying a similar level of magical thinking. Shorter than the time the Ever Given spent stuck in the Suez Canal, just when we thought that was going to be the most incompetent thing to happen this year. And it's shorter even than the world's longest football match. I mentioned Line of Duty. Of course, we've all been gripped by the great anti-corruption drama this month. Would they uncover the truth? Would they be allowed to investigate? And the big reveal, who was it going to be? Well, spoiler alert, in the end, Sir Christopher Geit was named as the Prime Minister's new independent advisor on ministerial interests, but he has not been granted the authority to instigate his own investigations. Some might say the name of the role, the Prime Minister's independent advisor, is oxymoronic. Others, that some of those syllables also apply to its continued lack of powers. It's taken the Prime Minister a long time to appoint his independent advisor. Let's change the scale there. Nearly 4,000 hours or 159 days. 
That's still shorter than the time still being taken to publish the latest Register of Ministers' Interests, supposed to be published twice a year but not updated since last July. An elite thinking they're above normal rules of accountability, decency and fair play. The clubs involved in the European Super League are expected to play in the Champions League as normal next season, unless they're Spurs, Arsenal or Liverpool, who are unlikely to even qualify. Improving ethical standards in government was the subject of one of many IFG reports this month. There were lots of lovely charts too, including in two reports looking at devolution. This week sees elections for the devolved parliaments in Scotland and Wales, as well as lots of elections across England. Check out the IFG election hub for loads more. As you may know, Scotland and Wales use a different voting system to Westminster. While most members are elected by first past the post, a number of additional members are allocated seats according to this, the Deont formula. It's only simple maths, there's no need to be daunted by it. Time prevents me from explaining it fully, but the effect is as follows. These are the constituency votes in the 2016 Welsh Senate election. If seats were allocated only on a first-past-the-post basis, you'd get this. Labour overrepresented, other parties underrepresented. UKIP gets 12.5% of the vote and no seats. But this is what happens once the additional seats are taken into account. Labour's advantage narrows and the other parties get more seats. That makes reaching a majority more difficult. But in Scotland, the main story will be whether the SNP get a majority. This chart shows us the seats in the Scottish Parliament since 1990. In the early days, Labour governed with the Lib Dems, getting them over the 50% line. But in 2007, they lost seats and the SNP headed the government for the first time as a minority. They won a majority four years later. They fell just short of that in 2016 and are hoping to regain it this time round. Look at that reduction of Labour seats over time. They were overtaken by the Conservatives as the largest opposition party in 2016. That's a fight to watch this time too. In Wales, the big question is whether Labour will maintain their continuous presence in government. After 1999, they were in coalition with the Lib Dems, then they governed by themselves, then in the One Wales coalition with Plaid Cymru, then by themselves again, as Plaid fell behind the Tories for the first time, and then with a Lib Dem in government and later an independent member as well. If you're wondering why the right-hand side of that chart looks like the pixelated graphics from a 1980s computer game, that's the disintegration of the UKIP group, as they all sought independence from one another. 18 changes of allegiance in a single parliament. Who do they think they are? Change UK? I've left you hanging like a strip of £840 a roll wallpaper for long enough, so let's turn to tonight's terrific speakers. First, we'll be hearing from Mark Green, Senior Lecturer in Health Geography at the University of Liverpool, on local data spaces, helping local authorities tackle the COVID-19 pandemic. Then we'll hear from Nick Bailey, Director of the Urban Big Data Centre, who'll be talking about the Urban Big Data Centre's research. After that, we'll hear from Michaela Benzival, Director of Understanding Society at the University of Essex, and Gemma Schwendel, Senior Analyst at the Joseph Rowntree Foundation. They'll be talking about producing and using real-time data about the impact of the pandemic on household income and on the lives of low-income families. And finally, we'll hear from Catherine Bromley, Deputy Director of Data Strategy and Infrastructure at the ESRC and a veteran of Databytes 4 back in 2019. She'll be talking about UK social science data infrastructure, what's worked during the pandemic, what's been a challenge and lessons for the future. The next Databytes will be taking place on Wednesday 2nd of June. Join us then and also on Wednesday the 7th of July, our last event before a summer break. We're incredibly grateful to our sponsors this evening, ADR UK and the ESRC. We're only able to keep Databytes going thanks to the generosity of our partners, so a huge thank you to them. If you'd be interested in sponsoring a Databytes in future, then please get in touch with my colleague Britesh. 
And if you'd be interested in speaking or know someone who should be, please drop me a line. As ever, we'll be having some virtual drinks afterwards. I'll put these details on screen again at the end, but go to bit.ly slash db19drinks, capital DB, with the password ifgdb19, all capital letters except the F. That's more than enough from me. Now over to our first speaker this evening, Mark. Hi, everybody. So I'm Mark Green, and what I'm going to talk about in today's um, presentation is a little bit about what local, local data spaces is and some of the key insights that we've gained from speaking with local authorities and some of the outputs that we've generated during the process. So what is local data spaces? Local data spaces was a pilot that ran from the start of November last year and has just concluded at the end of April. And really the aim of local data spaces was to try and provide data and evidence to support local authorities in the response to COVID-19. More specifically, it was really about how can we really get local authorities to utilize some of the sensitive, secure and timely data that the ONS's Secure Research Service holds um, that they might not be using and help them access that data, use that data to make better policy decisions. And to achieve that sort of grand aim, we set about with sort of three, uh, three models of engagement. So model one, we met with many local authorities. Um, most of them said that there was definitely a need for accessing some of this data. Not so many of them did have sufficient resources to access the ONS SRS themselves, but where they did, we work with them to put in an application to access data in the SRS. So we help them access that data, fill in all of the wonderful forms in that process and get them to the point where they can access and use that data themselves. And of course, the outcome of all of this was that local authorities suddenly have access to new data they weren't using and they could run their own analyses um, to support the decisions that they made. For example, Hackney, we helped Hackney access some of the data on the SRS, and they're really interested in doing some work around occupation um, and COVID-19 prevalence and the inequalities that interact between those two things. The second model of engagement, again, when we met with local authorities and they expressed a, a desire to access some of these data, but maybe themselves didn't have sufficient time or analytical support within their local authority to really make the most of that data, we took a different approach. Specifically, we met with them and we co-produced, discussed the ideas and research questions that they wanted to answer themselves. And the team of four of us, myself, Maurizio, Jacob and Simon, would conduct the analyses on their behalf and then go back to local authorities and we'd iteratively refine their insights, present them to them and do the sorts of things that they wanted to find out about. And the outcomes of this, firstly, is that local authorities would still benefit from some of these data insights, even if they weren't necessarily doing the analysis themselves. But also we took an approach that if we could do the analysis for one local government, one local authority, we could do it for all local authorities in England so we would also set up analyses so they would be run for all local authorities so that everyone would benefit from these discussions. And this model ended up being far more popular, for example, working with York to understand the impacts on tourism in their city. Market Harbour were interested in footfall around their high streets. 
And indeed, we submitted some evidence to Liverpool on the evaluation of their mass testing program that helped them refine that delivery. The third model of engagement was that we would do our own reports that we based upon discussions from local authorities, we would generate these reports and share them with all local authorities. And sometimes we would get feedback from meeting with those local authorities, which would allow local authorities again to benefit um, from some of the data insights that we would generate. Um, and this often really gave a nice little feedback loop as well into this. So for example, we generated a report on occupational inequalities in COVID-19. This was shared in a uh, Northeast and Yorkshire uh, group meeting of which Hull came back to us and said, that's really interesting. We'd like to know X, Y, and Z for Hull. And we were able to generate a more bespoke report specifically for Hull. So they still benefited, even though they weren't necessarily totally engaged in that process. So what have been our key outputs from local data spaces? Well, we've worked and co-produced research from around about 25 local authorities across England. And the result of these discussions and co-production processes were 10 short reports uh, that we've generated for all local authorities in England. And I'm really excited to say that actually they've, they've gone live today. So if you click on this link here, if you go on the data.cdrc.ac.uk link, you can access and look at all of the reports that we've generated for free. They're all open there. We've also, from discussions, generated six more bespoke reports on more specific things local authorities wanted. Uh, and we've also been invited to submit evidence to SAGE via some report on the ONS. And we've also worked to generate open source statistical code to help clean and analyze data sets in the ONS SRS that have also helped local authorities better engage with these data and actually be able to engage with them without having to go through the nitty gritty of data wrangling that we all love to do. So before I leave you, I just wanted to show a few outputs. And this is one of the reports on our left hand side, which was generated in this extent by my colleague Simon. And what they're doing is they're just producing a nice short report. It's only about a page, a page and a half. In this case, looking at geographical inequalities in the NH, uh, NHS test and trace data. We can do this in this case just for Leeds. Uh, we've done these for all local authorities. And of course, you can see that in the most deprived areas, uh, there's greater positive cases of COVID-19 from the test and trace data. But like I say, there's 10 reports from this whole series, including things like looking at occupational inequalities, looking at which work sectors had higher or lower prevalence of COVID-19. We've done some report on uh, small area recovery, focusing on economic impacts uh, of COVID-19, looking at the different sectors that were more or less affected by employment, unemployment, furlough. And we've also done some work um, looking at human mobility trends, looking at footfall patterns. And that also has been very useful for looking at how high streets have recovered through that process. So that's everything on local data spaces. Uh, hopefully within the eight minutes, as much as you can cover that time, I'm more than happy to answer any questions and thank you very much for listening. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, Mark. Um, let's go to some questions. Uh, just a reminder, if you would like to um, 
ask questions you should be able to do so via slider and do tell us who you are otherwise we'll end up with more anonymous than a computer hacking convention which is what's happened over the last few months we've got some great questions coming in already mark um i'm going to start with one from uh, sam from med confidential evening to you sam he asks is this process written up in the, anywhere he thinks a few people in government don't think that local authorities and other public sector organizations have the skills to use a trusted research environment like the srs what does your experience um, offer to better inform that view? Yes, so there, there will be a full evaluation report that will be um, made available shortly. It's, it's in the final stages of being written up and that covers everything from what we found from talking to local authorities, their, their needs. Um, I think definitely the thing that came out for me that was interesting was that there was a huge demand actually for this service and um, certainly making the, the most of all of this wonderful data um, that local authorities really did need. We do have some um, resources that we have made available today on the CDRC website, which you can um, click on to. There's a, a blog post on there that kind of introduces that um, article. Um, the other thing is if people want to get in contact, to drop me an email and I'm more than happy to share what we've got and hopefully eventually when we get the uh, evaluation report when that's published. Excellent. Thank you. Um, we've got a question from Odd Vagel next, um, which I could probably put to any of our speakers tonight. Um, they say that we've got data bytes, big data, data strategy, data to everything, data management, uh, and of course, local data spaces. Um, should we replace data with information? Do we need to think differently about how we talk about this? Well, I think there's two things that we, we try to achieve in local data spaces. And one was actually getting local authorities to access data. So the, the hard records, the social surveys, but there's also a process around turning that data, which is just a bunch of numbers and text information into insights and information. And, and that proved much more trickier. So uh, there was a lot of demand from local authorities, but the local authorities themselves weren't necessarily sure what research questions they always wanted to answer. And I think that connection between the opportunities that the data can bring to answer some of the questions is a bit harder. So we end up using some of these short reports as sort of conversation starters of what we can do with that data, what we can turn it into information for them. And then that helps spark a lot of debate of the additional report or analyses that they wanted generating. Thank you. Um, the next question from Michael in Nigeria. Good evening to you. Um, so it follows on quite nicely from that. Um, data collection and its utilisation is great. How can institutions like the IFG and as I suspect others partner with local government to build capacity of policy makers um, to utilise data, especially for development and policy direction? Um, I think we often talk about sort of data and various people in policy making can sometimes feel a bit distant from it. How do we how do we sort of break through to them, I suppose? Well, I'm, I'm all for talking about how much I love local data spaces, but I, I think it, it worked really well in sort of plugging a gap in local authorities. Local authorities, they were coming to us and saying, well, they were in firefighting mode where they were constantly trying to, to generate either the, the key insights or the, the number of cases in COVID-19. And they were struggling to do all of that, let alone answer some of the, the bigger questions of research questions or forward thinking. And, and so we ended up filling some of that gap where they didn't necessarily have the time to engage and access the data directly, but they had a lot of interesting questions that they wanted answering that we could you know, help them with. Excellent. Um, we've got just over four minutes left. Just a reminder to everybody, uh, we've still got time for your questions, which you can uh, submit using the Q&A on Slido. 
Uh, one from me, Mark. Um, what do you think are the main things that you've learned and local authorities have learned from this you know, extraordinary period that will be most useful for the future? What do you think the key lessons are that we can we can learn? I'm an optimist. So I, I like to think that actually we can do a lot of the things that maybe have held us back pre-pandemic and certainly opening up a data, data linkage. Uh, we've still got a long way to go. But many local authorities have done wonderful things to link up data records, administrative records, um, and get some of those key key insights from some of those data that we, we really weren't really benefiting from. So, for example, in, in Liverpool City Council managed to get a whole range of administrative data sets to link things like NHS test and trace data up to some of their hospital records, up to some of their GP records as well. And now they have this wonderful access to a database that can tell them who has who who and who has not been vaccinated already, and we can start to drill into okay which populations maybe we want to support or target to try and increase uptake. So I think some of those barriers have been removed, and you know people have worked really hard together um, during the pandemic. So that that for me is the one thing I take forward. Fantastic. Um, we've got some great questions coming in. Uh, one from Tom King. Are there repeat local authority customers getting more sophisticated or is it different people even when it's from the same local authority coming to you? We, I, I, I don't know about repeat customers um, per se. We, we worked with 25 local authorities and we tried to work with as many as we could to get, you know, they had a lot of different views over their interests. Um, a lot of the time what they really wanted was quite actually quite statistically simple and, and I think there was a lot to be benefited actually from just opening up data and presenting some of the data in the SRS to here's the sort of overall statistics, here's the overall patterns of what's going on. There wasn't necessarily much interest in doing anything more complicated than that and sometimes it is difficult to translate you know data and more sort of complex modelling um, to what they can get out of it. Thanks. Um, the first question from Anonymous this evening. Good evening to you, Anonymous. Uh, they say, great presentation, Mark. Um, do you get a sense about whether local authorities will be able to make decisions for their areas based on the reports the team have produced? Um, well, at the minute, we're still trying to compile some of this, um, this sort of evidence, like you might say, at least on how they're using the reports. Um, so, for example, with Norfolk um, City Council, they were very interested in occupational inequalities. We shared the report with them and they've shared that around their uh, public health teams. And they've been particularly interested in um, inequalities resulting from the furlough scheme. Um, whether that gets translated yet into hard decisions on policy, I I'm not so certain, but the, the pilot only did end at the end of April. So it'd be nice if they did make some better decisions from this. Um, if anything, certainly local authorities have just been happy to see data and, and they seem to anything they can get their hands on really to try and improve their understanding of their local situation, they seem to be really happy with. Excellent. And a final question, another one from Anonymous. Uh, what most surprised you about this project? That's, that's a very good question. Um, I think for me, the thing that surprised me was probably local authorities struggling to um, really articulate the research questions they wanted. I, I kind of came in this thinking our oh, local authorities would be, you know, they'd have a list of questions or they, a list of areas they're really interested in. 
And some of the initial meetings were a, a bit more difficult to actually get out those research questions. And it, it took a lot more effort to try and uh, understand what they needed and help them translate the sort of questions that they wanted to answer. Um, and as I sort of mentioned before, we used some of our reports as conversation starters. And really, it, you know, a lot of them were interested once we could show them the sort of data that we had available to us and the sorts of insights we could generate. And then that started to get more specific questions from it. Excellent. Well, thank you very much indeed, Mark. It's got our evening off to a fantastic start. Thank you for sharing the story with us. Thank you. Um, I'll hand over to our second speaker very shortly. Just a reminder that you can add questions uh, using the Q&A tool on Slido throughout uh, the presentation. Uh, but without further ado, I will now hand over to Nick. Nick, over to you. Thank you very much, Kevin, and I hope you can see my slides okay. We can indeed. Great. Well, thank you for the uh, in invitation to speak to this uh, great series of uh, events. Um, I'm working, I'm going to talk about the work of the Urban Big Data Centre. We are a research centre based at the University of Glasgow that specialises in the use of new forms of data to understand cities better and to inform urban planning and urban policy making. And we're also funded by the ESRC as part of the national data infrastructure. So we have a role as well, helping others to uh, get better access to these kinds of data and to make better use of them. Uh, as I think Gavin and, and uh, has already noted, you know, the last year has seen a, 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 a huge increase in the interest in data across government. Uh, and the national data strategy last year says we've reached a new high watermark. And I think that new forms of data have been particularly uh, important in that regard. And by new forms of data, I'm talking about data which come out of, for example, out of business and administrative systems. And Mark's presentation gave a fantastic, uh, you know, some fantastic, great examples of the work local authorities are doing with their own data, but also from other sources like user-generated content from people using social media or, or apps, and from a variety of different kinds of sensors, be it traffic sensors uh, or the kind of you know, the sensors we have built into our mobile phones. Um, and the reason why these these, these data are so uh, I think so so powerful is a number of factors. First of all, they're, they're big data, so they have great geographic coverage across the country, but also allow us to drill down to very small areas, and we get great spatial and temporal detail. So lots of different um, uh, dashboards in the last year have been producing daily updates for local authorities in a whole range of different aspects. They're often available very, in a very timely fashion with a low lag or low latency. So it's not that we get real-time information, but we get near real-time information. Information with a, a few days or a few weeks lag, um, but much more frequent than kind of traditional statistical sources. Um, and also, we often get historical uh, data from these sources as well, so we can contextualise what's happening this year by comparing to previous years. So I want to look at a, a couple of examples of our work over the last year, uh, both of them focused around mobility. And the first was, was something we were actually working on before the pandemic struck. So we were in a partnership with Glasgow City Council, who were about to invest large sums of money in public realm upgrading. And they wanted ways of uh, understanding how people use public spaces before the work can, were carried out and afterwards. It was a phase program. We were going to feed back to them how the changes have 
you know, it impacted on people's use of public space to inform later stages. As the pandemic hit, they became very interested in uh, how people were moving around different parts of the city centre, um, but also other places like parks and open spaces. So we took the, um, sorry, I've jumped on two slides, that doesn't help. Um, we took the uh, the system which was uh, was using spare capacity within the CCTV network uh, and rolled it out to a wider number of locations. So we're using the existing physical infrastructure, we're not installing any new cameras or sensors, and we're applying open source uh, software, not proprietary products, uh, in order to produce the, the counts, the analyses. And that in turn produces an open data flow, which not only the local authority, uh, but a wide range of other organizations can use as well. So ONS were picking it up as part of their national monitoring of what was going on in different cities. It's a data science project on the one hand, but it's also a project where the kind of social and practical aspects of data collection are really important. We're operating within the confines of a, an operational public uh, safety uh, system. Uh, we have to make sure we don't interfere with those operations and that the operators themselves are happy with the ways in which we're working. Um, and so that a kind of a, it's about establishing not just kind of the technical infrastructure, but a kind of proper social protocol for making this uh, effective. And on the right, you can see uh, data for Glasgow for the last week, which I, I pulled off uh, on, on Monday. Um, you can see how the, uh, the Scottish easing of lockdown, which happened a week ago on Monday, uh, changed patterns of footfall, levels of footfall in the city centre and other, uh, other high street locations in the daytime and the evening. And we can go down to more granular, granular locations and times as well, but that's the kind of you know, speed with which you can give feedback. There's further development going on to expand the range of measures um, in, in terms of people's uh, dwelling time and, and, and uh, how they uh, interact in public space as well. The second example I wanted to speak about uh, came out of that work and, it was re and reflecting on the fact that it was uh, clear that local authorities had a much greater interest in a fine grained understanding of mobility across the uh, across the urban area. So not just in the kind of the select locations covered by the CCTV cameras. And it was partly about the management of the pandemic, but over the last year, increasingly clear that authorities were looking ahead to the recovery process as well. So they wanted to understand how the urban economy was getting back on its feet, how the city centre and other locations were attracting um, uh, shoppers, but also uh, attracting people to work. Um, understanding the volumes of footfall in, in locations like green spaces, for example, which have been under a lot of pressure uh, in the last year. And understanding how different communities were beginning to kind of uh, go, get back to normal levels, levels of mobility. So we, to address these kind of needs, we've taken uh, licenses with two major uh, mobile phone uh, data providers. And we're in the process now of turning these raw data into useful information and intelligence, um, as, as Gavin was uh, uh, noting before. Um, very large in volume, way beyond the scales of, of, of data which local authorities would normally have to, to work on to understand what was going on in their areas. And lots of, you know, not just data science issues here, obviously, but lots of other wider social science questions as well about appropriate governance uh, protocols. There's no question of opening up these data to a wide range of users. They are potentially very disclosive. So we had to keep uh, careful control of them 
through our infrastructure and, and um, approvals processes. We need to ask questions about the data, about how well they actually do in practice represent patterns of movement in the city. Uh, are they biased or are they uh, giving a fair representation? We're engaging with lots of local stakeholders to understand exactly the kind of data products they want from these data and working to produce derived open data sets, aggregated data sets, which we can share much more widely. And we're also thinking about different kinds of interface which might enable some uh, less technical uh, users to engage the data without having to go back down to the raw data itself. So within the limits, I hope of my uh, brief uh, eight minutes, I hope I've shown the value of some of the new forms of data we've had to work with in the last year. Um, and also highlighted how our work is about that combination of, on the one hand, data science and technical expertise and capacities, and on the other, social science uh, and engagement with, with local stakeholders. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much indeed for that, Nick. And a reminder to everybody that you can use the Q&A uh, on Slido to ask Nick some questions. Um, and I'm going to start with one. Uh, it's from Odd Vagel again. Have any of the, the authorities that were involved with these new forms of data made any decisions about changing things using the data? Uh, I'm not sure I can point to specific things that they have uh, done differently as a result of the data. Um, but I know that they, uh, Glasgow in particular, uh, you know, have, have been actively monitoring the footfall data, for example. They were the ones who were pushing us at the start of the year to expertly kind of scale up from our kind of pilot of four cameras to 40. Um, you know, they're the ones who are kind of wanting the kind of feedback on it. I think, you know, they're, they're, local authorities are obviously doing a wide range of monitoring of, of different aspects of the local economy and and, and and you know social activity and so on and it clearly feeds into it in terms of the um urban the mobile phone data um there's a very clear um set of needs which they have articulated we've had quite a long dialogue around the kind of process of acquiring the data to make sure the data we acquired could support the kind of questions they wanted to ask and we have now a kind of shopping list of items from them and indeed, they are commissioning some of the analysis of that data. So I think the fact that they are prepared to put a significant resource into the analysis suggests they have concrete uh, decisions they're make, going to be making on the back of it. Excellent. I, I suppose a related question from Anonymous. Who else? Um, will governance um, change? I, I suppose people responsible for governance um, change their powers directly from the findings and stats that you produce for them? So I think is that similar, I think, in some ways to the, the previous question. I, I, I think the, you know, the answer is yes. I think the there is a you know one of the one of the concrete users we're talking to frequently is the person who's responsible for updating transport plans for the city, who clearly has to grapple with the enormous shifts in patterns of commuting over the last year, and in mode choice and the kind of avoidance of Public, public transport um, and has to think and, and ask the question about the extent to which that is a kind of durable shift or merely a temporary shift. And so having access to data, which will be, it, we, we're collecting data through this year, it'll be updated on a daily or two daily frequency. We'll be able to give her trends, which, you know, not just averages for the last year, but are, you know, reflecting how people's behavior changes month by month and week by week as 
hopefully, fingers crossed, touch wood, uh, the uh, vaccine rollout proves to be effective and people begin to move back towards more normal patterns of working. So I think there are lots of things will be uh, shaping, but that's just one of them. Excellent, thanks. And we've got a great question from Mary. Evening to you, Mary. Would you be able to say a bit more about data governance and what types of processes you've set up to balance data security and data access? A great question, thank you. Um, I think um, we are very, very conscious of the, with the mobile phone data, that it's, it's granular data that, you know, lets us follow people, anonymized individuals around the city, but we all know that that with enough data, um, they are, you know, that there are identification and privacy risks. So we take the same broad framework which the Admin Data Research UK uses, which is the kind of five safe framework, which is the idea that you'll have. I see if I can remember them all: safe researchers, safe projects, safe places, safe data, and safe outputs. Um, and you can, to some extent, make trade-off between these. So, for example, um, you can. The simplest answer is you make the data safe by having anonymized, aggregated outputs where no no privacy risks are present, and that's what you, what we will use in most cases for, for distributing data to local authorities. But if there are people who would really, really wish to have a good case to work on the raw data, then we would require them to have undergone training. We would require them to use to be a safe researcher, require them to use the data in a safe place that we would use a national safe haven in Scotland. Um, and we would have output screening to make sure that anything coming out of the safe haven was a safe output and had no disclosure risks in it. And we would vet the project and make sure it was a, you know, an appropriate use. So, we are very, very aware of the, of the issues, of the, you know, the, the privacy concerns of these data um, and keen to ensure we do the right thing legally, but also are seen to do the right thing so, uh, and, and maintain the kind of public support for the work we do. Excellent, thanks. A not unrelated question from Giacomo. Can you talk a bit more about how ONS incorporated this data into their near-time data pipelines and how that collaboration came about? Yes, um, so ONS um, are producing statistics for a number of different, different cities across the country by pulling data from, I think, a lot of traffic cameras, which have generally low resolution images of um, street roads and junctions and so on, and using it to give uh, indications of volumes of traffic. We're producing, and one or two other places are also producing counts of pedestrian footfall, um, the data we put out, so the data analysis is done within the secure environment of the uh, Glasgow City Council CCTV Centre. All that comes out of it are raw counts of pedestrians present. It's non-personal data. We publish it as open data through an API and ONS, just like anyone else, can come and pull the data down um, and incorporate it into their own analysis. So it's a, um, you know, a transparent, simple uh, system. And they, we were talking to them about a range of um, uh, data challenges they faced at the start of the pandemic. We have good connections with the data science uh, hub. Um, and that was one of the things they, they began to take from our uh, data service. Excellent, thanks. Um, we've got a question from uh, a non-H, uh, possibly continuing the line of duty theme there. Uh, would it be useful to expand the area to map the journey start and end points, for example, in order to look at improving public transport links from small towns from the wider Glasgow hinterland to reduce car journeys, um, they're assuming car journeys? 
thank you. Yes, um, yes and no. I mean, we, we, we drew the boundary in conjunction with the, the local authorities uh, in order to cover the um, what we call the kind of functional city region. So city region is designed to kind of capture the relationship between um, rural towns and, and, and settlements or rural villages and settlements surrounding towns and the kind of core city. It's not to say it captures all of the people who might kind of travel to work in the city centre, but it is designed to be a largely self-contained uh, geographic unit. It's a travel to work area. Would we like to have the resources to buy data for a bigger area? We always would. Um, if you want to talk to us about uh, acquiring data for a larger area, come and talk to us. Um, what, what we're trying to do is, you know, build, a, develop a kind of a system which other authorities can use, but we could only really start with one uh, city region area. Great. We've got about 20 seconds left. I'm going to squeeze in a very quick last one from John. Uh, back to the five safes. For safe outputs, what are the parameters you use specifically for dashboard data? Is that published? Um, so the dashboard data would run off uh, aggregated open data products. I can't in, in the remaining 10 seconds explain the kind of uh, uh, algorithm for, to check, for checking security, but it's the same data screening process as would be used by the ADR UK infrastructure for deciding whether to release tables or not. Brilliant. Nick, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. Uh, and thank you to everyone for all those great questions. Sorry to those of you uh, whose questions I wasn't able to put to Nick. Um, next, we'll be going to our third and fourth speaker, uh, to Michaela and Gemma. Over to you. So thank you. So as uh, Gavin said, this is a double act. I'm Michaela Benzwell and I'm talking about how we converted Understanding Society to collect real-time data. And then Gemma is going to talk about the ways in which she used it to look at poverty. So for those of you who don't know, Understanding Society is a, a large longitudinal study of 40,000 households. It began in 2009 and we interview everybody in the household every year. Fieldwork uh, is carried out face-to-face -face or by web or by telephone. So each year we're doing all three of those things. And each way, given we're trying to interview people in uh, 40,000 households, takes two years. And when then we need to plan it and then we need to release the data. So the whole cycle takes four years. So it's quite a, a long time. Coincidentally, in 2020, we were doing a methodological test called event-triggered data collection, where we sent texts to people on our innovation panel to complete a monthly web survey where we asked them about things that had happened to them that month. And that turned out to be a really lucky thing we were doing that year. So when um, the lockdown started in March 2020, we had to stop all face-to-face -face interviews, but on our main study, we were able to continue with the web and phone. So we kept the interviews going and we adapted the questionnaire. But given our cycle, those data are not going to be released until the end of this year. So not much use for real time data, lots of use for research, but not for kind of real time policy development. So we bid for money to do a monthly survey and ESRC and the Health Foundation funded that. Um, and we were able to do that very quickly, building on this platform we'd already created for monthly surveys. So in April 2020, we launched a monthly survey. We produced the first data file, which we released through the data archive to data users in May. And the first paper was produced by researchers over that weekend. So it was all much quicker than understanding society normally works. 
So the way it works is the participants on the main study were sent an invitation with a web link to the survey. They had seven days to complete it. And if they completed it, they got a two pound incentive, which either they could have as a shopping voucher or give to a charity NHS together. So over the last year, we've done eight surveys. We've had uh, web surveys, two telephone surveys for people who don't have internet. And we've sent out paper questionnaires to the children aged 10 to 15 three times. In March, funded by Patrick Balance's uh, National Core Studies, we included antibody testing. It's a 20 minute survey and we try to pack a lot into that by rotating content. Um, so we've put out calls to people for content and we focused on our main topic areas for understanding society. So that's health, income, employment, family and education. We try to repeat questions we already ask so people can look at change from before the pandemic to the pandemic and then hopefully into the future uh, post pandemic. In April, 18,000 people take, took part and 68% of them took part in the most recent wave in March. We have plans for one more wave, so ask me about that in the questions, when we're going to try to look forward, hopefully, to people's plans and expectations post the pandemic. So the data have been deposited at the data archive. Seven wa waves are there at the moment. March data will be released this month. Over 1,500 researchers have downloaded the data and we've managed to identify 170 publications they've produced using those data. Compared to our kind of normal users, uh, they're much more likely to be from the government and third sector, and there's been a much more rapid publication rate than we kind of normally expect. So thinking about some of the real-time policy development and monitoring that's used this data, the Treasury have been using these data to look at the distributional impact of COVID uh, from their policies. Public Health England use it to monitor the impact of the pandemic on mental health. We gave evidence to SAGE about vaccine hesitancy among ethnic minority groups and a whole set of other government uh, departments have been using it to develop their policies. Similarly, third sector organisations and think tanks have been using the data to advise governments and that's what Gemma is going to talk about now. Thank you, Michaela. Um, I have shamelessly borrowed this from Pamela Dell at the uh, database, um, database 18. Um, so when we consider the poverty conversation, um, JRF and the wider conversation are very guilty of analysis sloth. So using one metric to describe poverty, typically income related. Uh, JRF use the proportion of those living in the family whose income is 60% below the median equivalent relative income after housing costs. Take a deep breath. Now, this is an abstract concept that stakeholders can find it difficult to engage with. Um, so if we want to be using data to get things done, how we use data to drive that poverty conversation in a, in a meaningful way is critical. So one way we can do that is to consider, well, what does that actually mean for someone living below the poverty line? Can they afford to eat? Can they afford to save money for a rainy day? Do they have to get themselves into debt to make ends meet? Now, historically, JRF have relied on the Houses Below Average Income and the Family Resource Survey as our main data source to, uh, to describe poverty. As coronavirus hit, it became apparent pretty quickly that actually the significant time lag in those data sets meant that they weren't able to tell us what was happening in real time. And we needed to be, be able to assess the impact that COVID was having on low income families. 
And then further to this, um, we were still trying to use this one dimensional view of poverty around um, income. But increasingly, there has been a shift towards a multidimensional examination of poverty, both nationally and globally, with approaches to poverty eradication that include measures of other ways people experience poverty. So impacts on health, education, standard of living assets. So how um, understanding society COVID data has really helped us it's given us data in real time so we were able to see what was happening in real time near enough um we were and being able to link respondents to their pre-existing pre-covid data was absolutely crucial in being able to understand how unequally the pandemic has impacted different families there's lots of data in there covering a range of poverty um, issues so we've looked at the impact on financial security food insecurity digital access um, and obviously implications on, on education and well-being. So what this has done for us is improve the quality of the messaging that we're delivering. It's enabling us to better persuade government to get things done in respect to solving poverty. And moving to a multi-dimensional approach has enabled JRF to present our messaging in a way that's much more accessible to parts of both the public and political sphere, particularly those hard to persuade segments. So we've done a lot of work around how we frame our conversations around poverty and this multi-dimensional lens is really effective in you alongside the framing to open a conversation that is arguably more persuasive. So how we use the data today, we've added other dimensions to our work in monitoring poverty. So how are low income families managing financially? Are they keeping up with their bills, food security? Have children had access to digital resources? how um and exploring impact on specific groups so we've looked at bme households families in receipt of um universal credit or legacy benefits um and we've done some modeling around potential impact of policies and then going forward what we haven't done yet and it's just work starting now is to harness the longitudinal aspects um, and look at the trajectory of of income of financial well-being of personal well-being and how that differs again by different groups um, and different and particularly with low-income families and that's us done fantastic thank you both very much indeed an excellent bite so i suppose two excellent nibbles uh, if we're <laughs> being uh, very technical about it uh, just to remind everybody if you would like to uh, ask questions uh, you can do so using the q a tool uh, on slido and we've got a question from emma gordon from adr uk um question for michaela um she asks it must have been really daunting back in march 2020 thinking about how to adapt ways of working for running understanding society during a pandemic what learning will you be taking forward for more normal times? <laughs> so I think um, one big thing we will be thinking about going forward is about how we can create flexibility in the main stage without having sleepless nights running a regular monthly survey. So um, we added questions to the main stage. We're trying to release main stage data earlier instead of this four year cycle. So I think it's really about how we can bring the two things together, a much more flexible approach to the main data that we deliver. Excellent, thanks. Um, and Gemma, I suppose a similar question to you, actually. Mm. I mean, how, how, what, what will you take forward uh, beyond the pandemic as well? I think this um, the shift towards a multi-dimensional view of poverty um, is, is going to be key to our work influencing and, and getting things done. It gives a much wider perspective and, and, it, and it, it leads to a conversation that's much easier to engage with kind of members of the public. So 
it's you cannot possibly ex, um, expect political change if, if you haven't also harnessed cultural change. So we're thinking about opening up a conversation both with politicians, but also with members of the general public and kind of bringing both spheres along with us. And this kind of shift towards this multidimensional view and kind of actually translating that poverty line. I mean, it's a concept that even I struggle with to really have to think about sometimes. Well, what does that mean on a day to day life? day-to-day basis uh, I think it it leads to much more powerful um, message um, and and it gives a much more much more breadth to the work that we're doing. Excellent thanks Um, I'll go to um, Michaela on this one first and then to you Gemma. Um, Sam from Med Confidential asks what risks do policy decisions by government on uses of data pose to the public acceptability of the data underlying your research? So I think for understanding society, we very much tell our participants that that's the purpose of the study, for government to use the data to improve policymaking. And that's an attraction to them. They like hearing about how, you know, the time they've spent giving data to us is used by the government. I mean, obviously, some people are upset by particular policies if they feel they fit into them. But I would say much more overwhelmingly, people are pleased to be doing something constructive to help, you know, government create policies. Um, I think that's for me, that's quite a difficult question to answer because it's very rare that a, a government will ever publish the data that's driven their policy decisions. Um, I, I, I just, I'm, I'm not quite sure is the answer to that one. I, I think um, you know, we've already seen public attitudes towards the government change and certain policies change in response to the COVID um, outbreak. What we are seeing now is is those kind of attitudes, say, for example, around the adequacy of benefits. You see those attitudes bouncing back up to pre-pandemic. Um, I suppose our concern is it, it, it's, it's kind of keeping that momentum around ch- kind of changes in attitudes going and whether we can harness that with the data to kind of keep, you know, affect change. Excellent, thanks. Um, question from Ellis, which I think is going to be for you, Michaela. How do you eliminate or reduce biases in who actually responds? For example, who picks up the phone, returns the written survey within the study? So, um, obviously, initially it starts off as a representative sample. That's how we create the sample. But then you're right, some people are more likely to reply than others. So we do different things. One, we try to encourage people to reply. So we provide incentives. We give them feedback on what's how the data are being used and things like that. We tailor letters to make them specific to particular population groups to kind of you know, hook people in to to give their time to answer the questions. So there's a lot of work goes in in the design stage of the survey. And then in terms of the data, um, we have a big team of statisticians who create, who look at bias and model it and then create inverse probability weights um, to help the study reflect the population that it was originally sampled from. Great. While we're on sort of technical questions about the survey, I'm going to fire two uh, quick questions at you again. Um, John asks, how has the 32% attrition over the eight surveys affected the ability to be confident about the measures you're using? And Bruce Jackson asks, 
Are you worried about the participant burden <clears throat> for monthly surveys and what impact that might have on attrition for the main survey? How can we reduce burden thinking about new forms of data? Uh, so on the first one, uh, well, I mean, they're both related. They're both about attrition and and I suspect both due to participant burden. Um, so we are worried, to answer Bruce's question, about the impact this will have on the main stage, uh, attrition to the main stage. Um, we haven't seen that yet, as in, you know, it hasn't gone through the full cycle for those people to have been interviewed on the main stage again. Um, but that does concern us. And hence, we've limited this to a 12 month survey. Uh, we've been very clear with participants from the start. That's what it was. And um, um, kind of given them extra uh, thank you incentives uh, to say thank you when we finished it. Um, so that was the second question on the first one. We think 68% is a good amount to still have in the survey after uh, that number of waves and the weights help keep that group representative, although obviously as it gets smaller, you're relying on less people to create uh, uh, those weights, so the kind of precision goes down. Um, but, but we think that's a pretty good kind of maintenance of the sample over that period or that number of data collections. Excellent. Um, I'll come to you first again on this one, Michaela, and then to you, Gemma. Um, this one's from Giacomo. This near-time data has been massively useful. Uh, what barriers would you face in, in rolling out a survey of this kind on a more regular basis? Is it funding or other factors from converting survey responses to releasable data? So, um, I know this was true for ONS as well. A lot of the team were working through the night to get this done <laughs> on time um, at that short notice. Obviously, with a long planning, you could plan a team to enable that ha to happen, but it's very resource intensive to, to turn data around that quickly and questionnaires. Um, so I think it would be a different kind of scale of funding. I think participant burden is a real issue. And I guess, you know, in normal times, oh, something beat. In normal times, um, I, is, is there the need for that regular data on the sorts of topics that understanding society covers, you know, in terms of changes in family life and things like that? Um, I think for us, our biggest concern is, is what happens when this, the use of COVID data stops. Um, you, you mentioned the time lag on, on the main stage use of data, Michaela. We have the same issues with FRS, um, HBAI. I, I, I do have concerns that when the data stops, we go, are we going to have to go back to our time lagged one dimensional view of data? Um, is that then going to undermine the quality of the, the research and the evidence that we're putting together now? So I, I don't know what the answer is because I, I don't know whether anything is going to come into it to replace it. Um, we may have to become very creative about the data that we use to answer the questions that, that get posed to us. Brilliant. Well, we could keep going for at least another eight minutes, but I'm afraid that that is the end of our time. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, um, She's uh, been at a, an in-person data bites in the past, um, but our final speaker this evening is Catherine. Catherine, over to you. Thank you, Gavin. Sorry. Um, yes, it's it's great to be able to do um, another contribution to data bites. Um, obviously, I wish we were all in person, not least because I wouldn't struggle to find the mute button if that was the case. Um, so I'm here from the Economic and Social Research Council. Um, 
the three previous speakers have really showcased some incredible achievements of some of the data infrastructure investments that we make. Um, so we're the largest fund, public funder of um, data research infrastructure for the social sciences. We're part of UK Research and Innovation. Um, I'm just going to talk a little bit more about what's worked well. I'll also talk a little bit about some of the challenges we faced and then where we want to go next, having learned from those successes and challenges. Um, I feel that just before we start, I should just say a little bit more about what is social science data infrastructure. Uh, first thing to say, you know, it's it's not lovely boats that can go off to the Arctic and do scientific discovery. Our infrastructure tends to be more intangible. So it's it's data, it's facilities, resources to support the use of that data. Um, and that includes data archives and the kind of um, work that Nick has, has talked about. So understanding society, for example, that, um, that we've just heard about in ADI UK. But these investments are part of a much wider landscape of things that we fund, um, you know, much bigger than can fit on this one slide. Um, that's just giving you a flavour of it. Um, so in terms of what's worked well in the pandemic, um, clearly we've got the examples that we've just, um, we've just heard from. Um, the, I think the, the key achievements have really been in three areas. One is the ability to rapidly repurpose the existing infrastructure to respond to changing needs. Um, and there are examples here of um, both being able to deliver on original objectives, for example, the British Election Study and Understanding Society carried on and managed to, to deliver the surveys that they'd originally planned, despite the, um, the, the changes that uh, the pandemic brought about. But then also there was a big reshift in um, work to focus on new needs. So there were longitudinal studies funded um, uh, to do new data collections, the closer our investment that brings together longitudinal studies and helps people to discover and make better use of them, they rapidly develop this new COVID-19 research hub. We also saw our data access and trusted research environments very quickly shift to enable people to access data remotely that previously had only been in physical secure settings. But we also saw quite rapid development of new infrastructure, certainly more rapidly than is the case in our you know, standard procedures and, and um, timings for funding. So local data spaces you've heard about, but two others I'll uh, just mention. So within the last month, we've um, announced funding for a new study, um, the COVID Social Mobility and Opportunity Study of Year 11 pupils. that's um, going to follow um, a group of uh, pupils in England, um, group that group has been picked because they're the They've had two years of their GCSEs kind of impacted by school closures, etc. So that will then monitor their outcomes um, over the next few years in terms of their education and their employment destinations. And kind of reflecting a kind of major infrastructure gap that we um, need to acknowledge existed in our uh, landscape, that though, although Understanding Society has got a minority ethnic um, boost within it, it's not um, it's not enormous. Um, and so we've funded something called the Evidence for Quality National Survey, which is going to be trialling um, kind of new methods to sample populations um, at a scale and a pace that has never been delivered previously. So what's been challenging? Um, not all the data can be collected remotely. So we've got data collections who've been on pause since last year. And so we need to remind ourselves that you know, online um, telephone methods aren't likely to be the default in future. 
Um, and it's also the case that we need to better understand, as the, the Q&A just there um, reminded us, better understand who we can't um, capture by those methods and why. Um, it's also worth reflecting on the fact that many of our biggest achievements happened because um, we already had ready access to people that we've been collecting data from for many years. Now, obviously, this adds huge value to have those pre and post pandemic measures, but it does expose you if you've got people missing and it can be harder to establish high quality data collections of these kinds quickly. So I'll talk about something a bit more. So we don't exist in a parallel universe. The things that make it hard to get things done with data in government difficult also make it hard to access adequate sources to draw representative samples of individuals. So do remember that um, understanding sources started life as a sample of letterboxes to which interviewers were sent to try and identify people. So kind of classic uh, key example of this challenge here. So Cosmo, the year 11 study that I just talked about, that's happening in England because there is a sample frame of pupils that can be accessed for research in the public interest. And we have recent precedents for doing so. But that's not the case in the rest of the UK. So it's not uh, we won't have the same type of understanding of, of the impact on uh, pupils in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Um, and it's also the case that not all data owners have granted permission for remote access. So there's a growing backlog of analysis that hasn't been able to progress. So in terms of what next, um, we're keen to add new investment to diversify the data that's available. And so the different the steps we'll be taking to do that include extending the kind of work that Nick talked about to increase access to new forms of data. In terms of sampling, we're developing a new cohort study of babies with a specific aim built in to ensure that the sample enabled us to include families from groups previously underrepresented in these kinds of studies. And we'll be using the evaluation that Mark mentioned to help us decide where we're going to take local data services next. Um, ADR UK is funding new fellows to work with number 10 data science to help support government make use of all this data. Um, and we also have a programme of work underway to properly understand what researchers need in terms of access and support to use data in the future, working with data users from all disciplines to really innovate around trusted research environments. And we're currently developing a new strategy to make our vision and plans to deliver and to make our sorry, new strategy that will make our vision and our plans to deliver it more transparent. And we'll be sharing that and inviting feedback on that over the summer. So I think we really have a responsibility as major funders in this landscape um, to make sure that we're in a position to properly support the right kinds of infrastructure for the research problems we're facing at the moment and in the future. So that our investments are going to be able to innovate around what kind of data we collect, from whom and how and how we curate, so curate, share and support the use of that data. Um, so I'm very keen that you talk to us um, and we talk to you. So um, there's my email address. Um, we'll be using the hashtag future data services as that work uh, evolves. And um, I would imagine or hope that um, there'll be people in the audience uh, today who will be able to contribute ideas to that work. Um, thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, Catherine. Uh, just a reminder to everyone, you can use the Q&A tool on Slido uh, to put your questions to Catherine. We've got a great one uh, in already from Sam. Um, but I am going to uh, abuse my position as host and ask a question first. Um, Catherine, you sort of touched on 
Um, the, the fact that research assets aren't as tangible as a lot of other um, assets, and indeed as a, a lot of the assets that other parts of government uh, might be interested in. This is something that's come up at uh, previous data bites where we've talked about the value of data, and obviously the Treasury published a report recently, and um, the Macintosh report that was also thinking about sort of knowledge assets. So I wanted to ask, what sort of challenges come with the fact that your research assets aren't as tangible as others? Um, question, Gavin. I think that probably the biggest challenge in that space is the fact that um, the funding model for infrastructure um, in our space is largely tailored around tangible assets. So you build a large boat, so you've got huge costs in the first in its early years, and then you've got sort of a, a, a lifetime of you know keeping the barnacles off the boat or you know making sure your uh, your planes are refueled, etc. The space we have, particularly in the social science data collection, is you know once you build. Um, a great, you know, an asset such as understanding society, um, it doesn't really get that much cheaper over time to keep running it. So it has a very different spend profile. Um, and because of that, it makes us at the moment, I feel not as agile and responsive to new um, challenges or new kinds of data that we need to be collecting or supporting um, the collection of. Um, because we don't have a funding model that really recognises the way that, um, that, that that our infrastructure works. I think that's for me is, is the biggest thing. Thank you. Um, so a question from uh, Sam from Med Confidential. Uh, noting that NHS admin data still has higher coverage than the census, is it important that all large entities maintain public confidence in admin data research? How might, for example, a new care.data type project affect ESRC's data interests? Um, yeah, that's a very good question, Sam. And I think the, so in terms of, you know, care.data as in a a backlash against data use could massively impact um, the work that that ADR and the ESRC are supporting. So there's been a huge programme of work, particularly in the pandemic, bringing together the kind of economic and social data that a lot of our um, infrastructures hold with the health data and done securely um, and being held in the ONS Secure Research Service. So there's you know, proper safeguards around it. But the pandemic has, has really exposed that you you need to understand the living conditions, the employment patterns, the um, the welfare support patterns, and the kind of environmental um, determinants of people's lives in order to understand health impacts and health outcomes. And sort of classic example is, you know, the precarity of work contracts is a major vector for um, COVID transmission if people aren't able to self-isolate, etc. So. You know, we've demonstrated the value of being able to bring these things together. So if access to health data was um, kind of made harder again, then those those kind of insights would be really difficult to um, to be able to deliver. And I think that in terms of keeping the public's faith in it, it's about making sure that the messages around the five safes are very clear and, and used repeatedly and that the standards that they set out are always being maintained. Um, and it's about making sure that that, that real public value of bringing those data together and using it is made clear to the members of the public so they can see that you know, there are always trade-offs, um, but that the, the benefit clearly outweigh um, any kind of risks. 
Excellent, thank you. Um, a question from Emma over at ADR UK. Bearing in mind that there's always more to do, do you think the pandemic has created a shift change in the public's understanding of the importance of data in decision making? Um, yes, I mean, the parallel I always make is, so I, I live in Scotland. Um, in 2014, as some of you remember, we had a, a referendum and we suddenly became a nation of armchair economists. Um, the pandemic has made us a to an extent, the nation of armchair epidemiologists. So that exposure to data in our everyday lives has been um, quite dramatic. I mean, you know, 15 months ago, or, or if you think back to when I was here at Data Bytes 4, the topic of my conversation then with my previous role at the UK Statistics Authority was around, um, you know, data in every people's lives and making data valuable and recognising that. You know, we would never have predicted at that point that this would be, that we'd be where we are now. Um, and I think that that the two things are, that, that, that kind of pose a challenge for us. One is, I think what, going back to the conversation that we were having about the JRF and the poverty data is being able to continue that real time monitoring and sort of feed the appetites um, for insights that's developed while also not overburdening the systems and the people that and work to, to develop these and, and produce these data. Excellent, thanks. We may be returning to that in a, a moment. But first of all, a question from Anonymous. Do you think that the historic investment by ESRC in data infrastructure has allowed it to do innovation in the pandemic that was more difficult for other research councils? Um, good question. I, I mean, I know I can, I can say with certainty and we've seen, I think, um, just the reaping of the benefits of the previous infrastructure investment you know if we hadn't um you know had the the foresight to or the courage to put in the, the investment in the kind of late 2000s into establishing understanding society and also we had the you know the legacy of the its precursor the british household panel survey that sort of started in the 1990s so we're building on the efforts of people decades and decades beforehand in the social sciences who who developed these methods, who made it available, made it possible for us to sample, to to do those analyses of bias, to to really kind of curate and archive that data. Um, so I think we yeah we have we have definitely benefited from those kinds of legacies. Um, I don't think I, I don't think I know enough about the the different the other research councils um, but I suspect that our approach to data curation and archiving has put us in a position that's that's very strong that maybe um, other research communities are now looking to. Excellent um, would you mind stopping your screen share as well Catherine um, just while um, I, we've got just under two minutes left I'm going to try to fit in two final questions if, if we can. Um, so Mary asks uh, some countries have comprehensive linked administrative data sets showing every person's interaction with government services. Do you think there's potential for this type of linked data in the UK? And what are the barriers to achieving that? Um, yes, good question. There, there are many barriers. Um, I am, and many have written reports about these these barriers. Um, I think, um, I think one of the biggest barriers potentially is whether there would be public, public acceptability of something that was a kind of established infrastructure that linked everything together. Um, I think there are, you know, data holders have risks or concerns about that. I think the public have concerns about that. What I think would be 
what I would personally see as 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 an outcome that would be good to achieve is something, again, a bit like what we have in Scotland. We don't have a massive linked set of everything, but we have linkable data, linkable potential in all our data and most of our public sector data sets. So that as lot, you know, so it's it's possible to assemble data sets um, to put them to specific purposes, and then, um, but not necessarily store them in that format in in sort of perpetuity. But I think that the um, again that the public trust and the the gaining the, the the trust of owners to be able to curate that would be um, quite insurmountable. Barrier. Not insurmountable, but it would be a lot of work. Um, I know we're out of time, but I'm going to squeeze in one final question. So if you give me a, a two sentence answer, because uh, Matt asked something earlier and we weren't able to get it in. Uh, but Matt asks, how much does the funding model suffer from the fact that social science spending is resource heavy, whereas natural science is more mixed between capital and resource spending? Um, well, yes, I mean, that's I think what I was sort of alluding to that the well, so is within that that the, the capital is much more recurrent. So we we keep having to invest in, in capital um, in a way that you don't necessarily have to do that in the natural sciences. Um, and yes, on top of that, there's, there's a big resource element in terms of extracting and getting the best use of that data. Excellent. Well, Catherine, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Gavin. Uh, a perfect way to end, apart from a few parish notices and uh, a little bit of final housekeeping from me. Um, the first thing to say is, as ever, we will be uh, going to virtual drinks shortly after this event finishes. If you would like to join us, please do drop by for a bit. Um, drinks not included, it's bring your own, of course. Um, you can follow the link on the screen and use the password, both of which are case sensitive. Uh, as I said earlier, um, you can join us again on Wednesday, the 2nd of June. Um, sorry, Wednesday. Yes, 2nd of June. Gosh, I'm mixing my months up. Uh, 2nd of June for the next uh, data bites, and then we'll be back on the 7th of July for the final one before the summer. Uh, as we uh, discussed during the introduction, there's a lot going on election-wise at the moment. Do visit the IFG Election Hub on the Institute for Government website. Um, that includes lots of explainers, there'll be lots of analysis, and there's an event on Monday digesting what's happened. Today, uh, tomorrow, of course, is election day. So if you can vote in an election, make sure that you do. And finally, three thank yous to finish. First of all, a huge thank you to ADR UK and the ESRC um, for supporting tonight's wonderful event. Uh, a huge thank you to all of you in the audience uh, for some brilliant questions. And sorry, I wasn't able to ask all of them. And finally, join me in a virtual round of applause for our fantastic speakers this evening. Um, I've really enjoyed it. I hope you have too. And hopefully see you at virtual drinks or the next event. Thank you very much for joining us. Good night.